Please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 19. John chapter 19, you'll find it on page 906 in the Pew Bible. We'll be looking at verses 31 through 42. John 19, verses 31 through 42. Please give your attention to this, which is the Word of God. Since it was the day of preparation... And so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear And at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. I wasn't exposed to much death while I was growing up. As a matter of fact, my earliest memory of dealing with death of some, the death of someone close to me, was actually not a family member. It was actually a beloved family pet. One Saturday morning when I was a teenager, I woke up to the sound of my mother screaming. And being startled awake, I jumped out of bed and ran outside to see what was going on. And when I got out there, I saw that our little family dog was being attacked by our neighbor's Doberman Pinscher. Matter of fact, he had our our little dog in his mouth as I ran out the door. And so I started shouting at the Doberman, ran at him, and thankfully he dropped our dog and ran off. But when I got to see our dog, I could see that he was badly, badly wounded. Matter of fact, as I soon found out, was mortally wounded. We rushed to try to get him to the vet, but about halfway there he stopped breathing in my arms as I was holding him on a lap. So we turned around, went back home, and I volunteered to my parents that I would take the dog out to the back field and bury him there. And so I I dug a hole and carefully placed the little dog wrapped in a towel, placed the dog at the bottom of the hole, and then I filled the hole, the grave, back up with dirt, and I was uh, tamping down the dirt on top when I heard beneath the ground, woof, 
and I literally jumped a foot off the ground. <laughs> and my first thought was, oh no, he wasn't really dead. He's alive. I got to get him out of there. So I started digging, and then halfway down, I realized, ah, when I was tamping down the dirt, I actually pushed the air out of the lungs of the body so that it barked. Scared me. But I learned a basic life lesson. Always make sure that death precedes burial. (laughs) Now I'm going to ask you at this point to forgive the analogy, and I really mean that because I hate to make the connection to the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. But it is also a basic life principle when it comes to taking in what the scriptures tell us about the death of Christ. That death did precede burial. It's an important question that everybody has to answer. Did Jesus Christ really die on the cross? And if so, what's the significance of that death? Everybody's got to answer that. Everybody does answer it, either by default or, you know, by what worldview, what philosophy, what religion you marry yourself to. Matter of fact, early in church history, some of the earliest heresies in the church said that, yes, they were okay with saying that Jesus is divine, but they said he couldn't possibly really be human. That's kind of interesting that back in the early church, just because of the worldview that people had in general, they were much, they were, you know, almost everybody believed that there was a spiritual realm, that there was a supernatural aspect of life. And so the heresies that they fought with early in the church were the ideas that, okay, we're okay with Jesus being divine, but he wasn't really human. And so the late Gnostics and the Docet, those who believed in Docetism, the idea that, that Jesus wasn't really, he didn't really have a human body, that he only appeared to be human. And so the crucifixion was an illusion at best because he didn't have a real human body. Matter of fact, it's interesting that that heresy, if you know church history, that heresy was already creeping into the church at the time John was writing this gospel, and he was aware of it. And he was very aware of it when he wrote his epistles a little bit later because his epistles were written to counteract that teaching. Well, when you think of religious beliefs today, Hindus had kind of a similar belief, would have a similar belief about the death of Christ. They would say that the death of Christ released his essence from his body so that he could be merged with this God that permeates everything. And so it's kind of a similar view. Jews in the first century as well as today would say, no, Jesus was a real human being and he really did die, but he deserved to die because he was a false teacher and a false prophet. Muslims, most of them, would say that he didn't really die on the cross. Well, I think all of them would say it. Their explanation for it would be different. Some would say he didn't die on the cross. Although he was nailed to the cross, he survived it and later was bodily taken into heaven like Elijah. Other Muslims would say that it wasn't really Jesus on the cross, that God provided some kind of a doppelganger, some kind of a duplicate that looked like Jesus but wasn't really him because in their theology, Jesus couldn't have really died on the cross. They all believe that he was bodily taken into heaven. You see what I'm getting at. 
Everybody has to decide whether Jesus really died on the cross or not and what the meaning of that death is. John is getting that at that in this passage. We've been fascinated by the events that John chooses to record as he records the last days and moments of Jesus' earthly life. He doesn't record the things we might expect him to record. Matter of fact, when you compare him to Matthew, when you think about the events that happened right after Jesus died on the cross, you think about the things that Matthew recorded, because Matthew's concern was more to give kind of a chronological, historical account, where John's purpose was more theological. Certainly everything John recorded was historical, but he didn't record everything, and he kind of picked and chose things that supported the themes of his, of his gospel. Matthew's account, he tells us about a supernatural darkness that came over the land while Jesus was dying, and then after Jesus died, there was this great earthquake that affected Jerusalem, and he tells us even this remarkable fact that after, or as part of the earthquake, tombs were opened up, and saints who had died actually walked out of the tomb resurrected. So, you know, we're fascinated by that. We want all kinds of more information. to get all kinds of questions. Well, what's that all about? John doesn't include any of that in his account. And a matter of fact, again, he includes kind of odd little details. But the reason he includes them is because they tell us a lot about the death of Christ and what it meant. He gives us mundane little conversations and actions that teach us about who Jesus is What his death meant and the reality of his death, the testimony of the body of Jesus Christ. The first thing that he gets across to us is that the body of Christ was humiliated. We've already seen this. The humiliation of Christ actually began in his incarnation when he added to his divine nature a human nature. But it crescendos here at the end of his life where he's humiliated as he's beaten and nailed to a cross. But even in his death, even after his death, his humiliation continues. And we see it. Look at verse 31. The Jewish leaders come to Pilate. Again, we get a conversation between the Jewish leaders and Pilate. They come to Pilate and they ask to have the bodies taken down off the cross before sundown, which was rapidly approaching. Now that's contrary to the Roman practice. The Romans wouldn't do this normally. Normally, when the Romans crucified the lowest of low criminals and rebels, they would leave them on the cross long after they had died, days after they had died. They wanted them hanging up there on the cross so the vultures could come and pick their bones clean and wild animals could come. They wanted that because they wanted it to be a grotesque, graphic deterrent to others who might rebel against the Roman emperor. And so... The Jews needed a special dispensation here from Pilate to have the bodies taken down. Not only because sundown was coming, and we'll see in a moment, that's because that's what the law of God required, but also because this sundown in particular was the beginning of a Sabbath. And as it says here, it was a great Sabbath, a special Sabbath, because it was a Sabbath during the Passover week. So they desperately didn't want these bodies hanging up on the cross after sundown. It's interesting, the contrast there, before I get to the scripture that's involved with that, the contrast between the Roman view of the human body and the Jewish view of the human body. You know, the Romans, they uh, saw the body in a utilitarian way, and, and any of them that really bought into the Greek philosophy saw the body as something negative. Jews saw the human body as, as a key part, an integral part of who we are. And we are made in the image of God. 
And both body and soul, we reflect the image of God. And so in death, the body should be treated with respect. And that's still an issue. The body, even after death, should be treated with respect. And that's how the Jewish, we'll we'll see some of the Jewish traditions in the way that Jesus is buried here in this passage. But notice that the Jewish concern, the, 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 the concern of the Jewish leaders is not to show honor and respect to the body of Christ. They hated Christ. Their concern was to get this display, this symbol of God's curse off of this big placard, so to speak, right beside the main gate into Jerusalem. Because that's what the law of God said. Back in Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 and 23, it says, If a man committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. What the Jewish leadership didn't understand is that in that law about how to dispose of bodies off of a, that have been hanged on a tree, actually there's a prophecy. There's a foreshadowing of the work of the Messiah. Their concern was that this image of the curse of God be taken down before the Sabbath. But we know from the Apostle Paul's perspective, that's what Paul's alluding to in Galatians 3 when he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. They didn't recognize the connection between Jesus bearing the curse of God and becoming a curse for us. All they saw was a cursed criminal, and they wanted him off the cross. Again, they're straining at gnats and swallowing camels. They're concerned about this symbol of God's curse, and yet they themselves are placing themselves under God's curse for murdering the Messiah. This is the last stage of the humiliation of Christ, where his body is seen as a disgrace to the Jewish people. It is displayed as an emblem of God's curse. And so the prophecy of Isaiah 53 is fulfilled. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. The body of Christ is a testimony to his humiliation. Secondly, the, bo- the, deceased, the body of Christ is a testimony to the fact that he really was deceased. He fully, completely died. In order to hasten death, what the Roman soldiers would do is they'd take a big, heavy mallet and they'd walk over to the criminal hanging on the cross and they would smash the leg bones of the criminal. And the purpose of that was so that before the leg bones are crushed, they could stay alive by raising themselves up with their legs and, and allowing enough air to come into their lungs so that they could breathe. But once the legs are broken, they couldn't push up anymore, which meant that they would quickly die of asphyxiation. And so it hastened death, and that was the purpose. And so the soldiers went to the two criminals hanging beside Christ, who were still alive, and they crushed their leg bones so that they would die quickly. But when they came to Christ, it says... His legs, or he had already died, so they did not break his legs. They were surprised that he was already dead. And so to be sure that he was dead, 
they thrust a spear. One of the soldiers thrust the spear into his side. And John tells us that out of that gaping wound came blood and water. And it's interesting. You want to do an interesting bit of research this afternoon, do some study into what commentators think the significance of that is. Some think that it's a symbolic thing, that the blood and the water represent atonement and cleansing, and that's possible. One, I, I forget who it is, maybe it was Calvin, I think, thought that the, uh, the blood and the water represented baptism and the Lord's Supper. I doubt that one, but it's possible. But what really is happening here, and, and, and I think the only point that John is trying to get across in this context is that Jesus is thoroughly dead. There's no chance that he was alive at this point. Medical people tell me, and I apologize to Dr. Schneider and Dr. Hanty if you're here, I don't, I'm, I'm a total novice, I know nothing in this field. But from what I've read, what I understand is that this is probably evidence that the heart of Jesus ruptured in his extreme trauma of the beatings and the crucifixion. And that when the heart ruptures, which is a rare thing to happen, but it can happen under severe distress like that, is that the, the coagulated blood would gather in the chest cavity along with uh, kind of a watery serum that is in the pericardial sac around the heart, and that when the spear was thrust in the side, it released that coagulated blood and that watery substance, and that's what John saw. And if that's John's point, and I think that's, if there's any symbolic meaning to it, I'll leave that for theologians to debate. Clearly, the tangible point that John is making is there's no way that Jesus was alive at this point. He was thoroughly dead. Believing in the complete death of Christ implies two things. One is that his death to John is an important theological point. And secondly, he was fully human. What this account clearly makes clear is that Jesus Christ was fully human as well as being fully God. And that God, who had added a human nature to his divine nature, died in his human nature on the cross completely. It's important to our creeds that Jesus Christ was crucified, died, and was buried. We'll talk about the resurrection next week, but the resurrection is meaningless unless you first strongly affirm that he died because the wages of sin is death. And in his death, that debt is paid. John also here, before I move on to the meaning of that, the import of that, John points out that the piercing of Jesus' side was a fulfillment of prophecy. How many times does John keep doing that? This fulfilled prophecy. Even these tiny little details that seem insignificant are fulfilling God's plan to the T. Every jot, every tittle of prophetic literature is being fulfilled even in these tiny events. In verse 37, he quotes from Zechariah, the prophet of the Old Testament, where it says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Let me actually read that to you in context, because it's fascinating. At first, it doesn't seem like it's a very accurate quote from Zechariah 12, because in Zechariah 12, the piercing that's referred to there is kind of metaphorical. God is speaking to his people through the prophet Zechariah, and he's saying, your sins have pierced me. 
which is an odd way for God to speak to his people. But listen to how it says in, con- in context. In ch- verse 10 of Zechariah 12, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, God speaking of himself, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Speaking of a day when God is going to pour out a spirit of repentance upon his people and they're going to mourn over the fact that they have pierced their God with their rebellion and their rejection and their sins. And John says, this is what the piercing of Christ is to point us to on the cross. We have pierced God with our sins and Christ is the one who has paid the penalty. And then what's beautiful is you go down to the end of that section In chapter 13, verse 1, this is what the word of God through Zechariah says there. On that day, when the Lord pours out that spirit of repentance, there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Maybe that symbolism of the blood and water is intended to be there because this blood and water that flowed from the side of Christ is a sign of that this spirit of repentance can now be poured out because sin has been paid for. Makes me think of the great hymn, Rock of Ages. In Rock of Ages, let me give you the lyrics to that great hymn. It says, Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure, save from wrath, and make me pure. And that brings us to the testimony of the unbroken body of Christ on the cross. In verse 36 it says that the fact that the soldiers didn't have to break the legs of Jesus actually, according to John, fulfills Old Testament prophecy. He says that the scripture might be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. Now that's a fairly direct quote from Psalm 34, but it's actually, in a deeper sense, a reference to the Passover itself. Remember, the Passover is going on. And the rules of the Passover was that that if a worshiper wanted to come and worship God as part of the Passover, he had to take a lamb, and that lamb had to be physically perfect. It could have no blemish whatsoever, and its bones could not be broken. The Old Testament law states that more than once. The bones cannot be broken. And so John wants us to see that the body of Christ hanging on the cross is the Passover lamb slain for the sins of God's people. That Jesus is our Passover. That one who is perfect without blemish must stand in our place and bear the wrath of God and the curse of God in our place and be punished in full for our sins. That's the testimony of the Passover lamb. The worshiper who came to the Passover had to slit the throat of that perfect lamb and have its blood poured out on the altar as a symbol of the gospel that we believe. Worthy is the lamb who is slain. He has paid the price in full. Remember when back in early in our studies in the gospel of John, when John the Baptist, John the apostle was actually a disciple of John the Baptist at first. And remember the day when John the Baptist pointed John the Apostle to Jesus Christ when he met him the first time? Remember the first words out of John the Baptist's mouth when he pointed out Jesus to John the Apostle. 
John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And here's John saying, he is, the, he is our Passover. As Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 5, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. The debt has been paid. And so finally, having shown us that through prophecy, Christ has paid the price and our salvation is complete, he talks about the honored body of Christ. Look at verse 38. He introduces Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph of Arimathea comes and asks permission to take the body of Christ and to bury it. Now, this is significant because think for a moment what would happen to the body of Christ if Joseph of Arimathea hadn't stepped forward. The Roman practice was to take the bodies, once they were done being crucified, to take them off the cross and then take them out into a common garbage pit and throw them in their way through all the other criminals' bodies. That's what would have happened to Jesus' body if Joseph of Arimathea hadn't stepped forward. And so Joseph, John calls Joseph a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for the fear of the Jews. And we don't know a lot more about Joseph here, but if you look to the other Gospels, we do learn some other details about John. Let me just take you over to Luke chapter 23 and listen to this description of Joseph of Arimathea. It says, now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of the Jews, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, speaking of the decision and action to, to murder Christ. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. We know from the other gospels he was a very wealthy man, and we can see evidence of that here. According to Mark, he was not just a member of the Sanhedrin, but a prominent member of the Sanhedrin. And it says here in Luke 23 that he had voted against the decision to have Christ crucified. He was a devout man, a righteous man, and as Luke says, he was looking for the kingdom of God. So Pilate gives him permission to take the body probably because he was a prominent leader among the Jews, and he buries it in his own tomb, a tomb that had never been used. It was brand new. It was carved out of the the cliffside. We don't know, we're not sure. There's a big argument where it is, if you've ever been there, but it doesn't really matter. What we know from Scripture is it was carved out of the cliffside, which means it was the tomb of a very rich person because only they had those kind of tombs. And it was in a garden, So it was in this beautiful, expensive setting. That's where Jesus Christ was laid and buried instead of the garbage pit. And that's the fulfillment of Isaiah 53, verse 9, where it says, And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Again, John is beating us over the head with this message that to the last detail, this is all being carried out in accordance with God's eternal plan, which was set in place before the foundation of the world. And it's all for our salvation. And along with Joseph comes another name here, Nicodemus, one that we should know from our studies of the book of John. Nicodemus was another secret disciple. Remember back in chapter 3, he came to Jesus by night, under the cover of darkness, to ask him questions, to seek truth. And Jesus taught him that one must be born from above in order to see the kingdom of God, in order to enter the kingdom of God. So you get the sense here that both Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus are both seekers of the kingdom of God. 
They're probably Bible study buddies, you know, after the Sanhedrin meetings. They get together and search the scriptures and say, we want to know what it means to come into the kingdom of God. And they both look to Jesus for those answers. Joseph, or like Joseph, Nicodemus had also opposed the decisions of the Sanhedrin to murder Christ. In chapter 7, when we were studying in chapter 7, it says there in verses 50 and 51, Nicodemus, who had gone to him, to Jesus before, and who was one of them, said to them, to the Sanhedrin, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? Not exactly a strong profession of faith, but certainly trying to intervene to stop the madness. The spirit was at work. And so here, at the burial of Christ, Nicodemus steps forward, and he provides the spices and the linen to wrap the body of Christ before it's placed in the tomb. The linen, the word that's used there, means a very expensive linen form of fabric that was used to wrap the, the, each limb of the body and also to put a shroud around it. And those linens would be dipped in these spices, these perfumes, and the purpose was to cover the, the smell of a decomposing body. It's quite honestly the purpose of it. Remember, it says here that those spices were myrrh and aloes, and it makes you remember the, the nativity account when the wise men came and they offered myrrh, and we've always seen that as a symbol of Christ's approaching death. He was born to die. But it says here that Nicodemus provided 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes. Now, that sounds like an exaggeration, but we know if you actually, Old Testament scholars say that that was a typical amount of spices to use in the burial of a king. Matter of fact, in Josephus' historical accounts, it says that kings, even in Jesus' day, were used extravagant amounts of spices in the burial process at times. So this is Nicodemus saying, Jesus taught me how to enter the kingdom of God, and he is my king. What's amazing is he's saying this while Jesus is there being prepared for burial. He's dead. He's casting his lot with Jesus, even in this circumstance. What's striking to me is that the ten faithful disciples except for, you know, the 11, except for John, who was there, the other 10 are in hiding. And yet here are two secret disciples who are stepping forward publicly and identifying with Christ in his death and saying, he is our king. He is our hope. Out of love and devotion, they provide for him a king's burial. R.C. Sproul says in his commentary that the humiliation of Christ is finally over here and his exaltation begins. Just want to point out one other verse that I didn't mention, verse 35. There John emphasizes to us that this is an eyewitness account. He, He tries so hard in the Gospel of John to drive home the point that this is an eyewitness account. I saw this with my own eyes, he keeps saying over and over again. Now, he speaks of himself in the third person again. He keeps doing that. I don't know why. says, he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. Over in chapter 21, verse 24, at the very end of his whole gospel account, he says, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things, and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. This is eyewitness, historical fact, he's saying. And the, what, the reason I'm stressing this to you is that you must believe this because in believing this, you have life for eternity. 
That's what chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. We keep going back to these verses because these are the theme verses of John's gospel. It says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these, these odd little incidents that I keep telling you about. He says, These I have chosen. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now let me just remind you of the messages that are given to us as we see the body of Christ hanging on the cross, taken down from the cross, and placed in this rich man's tomb. Here's the testimony of Christ's body. He was fully God and fully man. He died a literal, physical, and complete death. And he died that death in order to become the true Passover lamb who bore the curse that our sins deserve so that we can be forgiven. And he is the king of kings who has opened the door for us to enter his kingdom through his death on the cross. That's the truth. And all other religions, all other philosophies, all other worldviews that tell you anything else are dead wrong. John is asking us to throw our lot in with Christ just like Joseph and Nicodemus did. To put our hope in him to be willing to give up our status in this world, to give up our possessions and our wealth in this world, to give up our relationships in this world, if that's what it takes, in order to give ourselves over completely to this crucified king. I was driving to church, to the church office early this morning and listening to some Christian music, and one of those songs came on that we in our theological circles like to despise as being a Jesus as my boyfriend praise song. <laughs> you know, the ones where you can just put, fill in the blank, put, either put your girlfriend's name or your boyfriend's name in there or, or Jesus' name. It works both ways and you can't tell for sure which it was originally intended to be. And, and we rightly critique those songs as often being uh, superficial and uh, even irreverent. That's true. Christians certainly can err on that side of the spectrum when it comes to worshiping. But as I was listening and I was finding myself judging that song, I also asked myself the question in light of what I've been studying all week, is it really better to live like Jesus is just my theologian or just my philosopher or just my moral teacher, which we in our circles tend to do? We'll sing our rich theological hymns and then pat ourselves on the back how smart we are to have figured all this out. And some of us don't have any more intimate relationship with Jesus than we do with John Calvin or R.C. Sproul or Tim Keller. The message of this text is to say, he is king, he is Lord, You need to love him and have the same adoration towards him that Joseph and Nicodemus had. Willing to give up everything for him where it's a daily walk of passionate love for Christ. Being a disciple is an intimate, devoted relationship with Jesus and worthy is the lamb to receive our praise every moment of every day. Death is not the end of the story. Next week, we'll talk about the resurrection. But Christ died for our sins, and that's the hope for any sinner, no matter where you're coming from. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for the word of God and thank you for the testimony of the body of Christ as it hung on the cross, the testimony of the body of Christ as it was placed in the tomb. And we joyfully anticipate gathering again in this place next Sunday to rejoice in the testimony of the risen body of Christ and the ascended body of Christ, the reigning Christ who sits on the throne. Father, may we be filled with love for him as we celebrate the resurrection this coming week. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.